Regardless how sincere, religion will not save you. Uh, religion can um, be a hot topic, can it? Conversation about religion can become charged very quickly. It has been said that baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet are all things American, along with the motto, never talk about religion or politics. They do charge debate, and with social media, it's off the chart, uh, acidic. 150 years ago, Karl Marx described religion as the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people, Marx said. And Marx, his cynical effort to label Christianity as really an addictive drug that destroys the masses through foolish beliefs and moral structures has been received by many. And see, we, we see many of his ideas and um, movements even in our culture right now. We would agree that religion without Christ is hopeless, though. We would agree with him on that. That religion without Christ is songless and hopeless and lifeless and filled with despair. Some years ago, I read this helpful insight into the deadening effects of religion. The famous uh, Christ the Redeemer statue, which is a statue that overlooks Rio de Janeiro and Brazil, a city of seven million people. On one occasion, this writer looked at the towering edifice through a telephoto lens and he made two profound observations about the statue. I couldn't help but notice the blind eyes. Now, I know what you're thinking. All statues have blind eyes. You're right, they do. But it, it's as if the sculptor of this statue intended that the eyes be blind. There are no pupils to suggest vision. There are no circles to suggest sight. I lowered my camera to my waist. What kind of redeemer is this? A blind Redeemer, eyes fixated on the horizon, refusing to see the masses of people below. I saw the second irony as I ra again raised my camera. I followed the features downward, past the strong nose, past the prominent chin, past the neck. My focus came to rest on the cloak on the statue. On the outside of the cloak, there's a heart, a Valentine's heart, a simple heart, a stone heart. The unintended symbolism staggered me. What kind of redeemer is this? Heart made of stone, held together not with passion and love, but by concrete and mortar? What kind of redeemer is this? Blind eyes and stony heart? I've since learned the answer to my own question. What kind of redeemer is this? Exactly the kind of redeemer most people have. Well, most people would not admit to having a blind redeemer with a stone heart, but take a closer look. For some, Jesus is a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot redeemer, pocket-sized, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put his picture on your wall or you can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You can frame it and dangle it from your rearview mirror or glue him to your dashboard. His specialty, getting you out of a jam. You need a parking spot, rub the Redeemer. You need help on a quiz, pull out the, the rabbit's foot. You need to have a relationship with him, 
no need to love him. Just pull him out of your pocket whenever you have a need. Along with your four-leaf clover. For many, he's an Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New jobs, new and approved spouses. Your wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently re-enters the lamp when you don't want him around anymore. Few demands, no challenges, no need for sacrifice, no need for commitment. That's the, that's the Jesus many people want. Religion has a deadening effect as it puts spiritual pursuits within the structure, a structure or a system in place of Christ. And this system becomes the most important thing as it says to those under its taskmaster's whip, work harder, earn God's favor, hold the line, rest in your achievements and your personal evaluations of how good you think you are, which is a lie. The message of God's grace found in scripture is counterintuitive to the way we evaluate the commitments of our lives. So religion emits a foul stench. It pays a rotten dividend and keeps you forever under a sentence of condemnation. Religion never ever delivers as it looks for salvation in all the wrong places. And so as the Apostle Paul in Romans 2 is making the case of our need for a Redeemer by showing that both Jew and Gentile are in need of a, a Savior. It was certainly true of the Jews throughout this, these first two chapters we read for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that is because in God's covenant, in God's covenant, He brought the Messiah through the conduit of Israel. And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger, he fulfilled all the prophecies that predicted his coming, that he would come and deliver his people from their sins. But they really weren't interested in him. When they saw him, there was nothing in him that they would desire him, Isaiah 53 predicted. And so they locked down, they dug in their heels, and they would not move off of their religious system. And so consequently, some of the hardest statements made by Jesus were to those encased in their religion, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The turning point of our lives when we come to the gospel, when we understand our sin, the turning point in our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is the God we will answer to on that day. So Romans 1 and now to chapter 2. I want to just note this uh, on the front end. Uh, just to make an observation. As you think about your relationship with God. As you interact with others in this world. With regard to how to understand God's redemption and salvation. That we look at the outward appearance. We look at the outward appearance. But God looks at what? The heart. God looks at the heart. When the prophet Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint one of his sons, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance, uh, on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Because he started with the oldest son and kept going down. Jesse's son, seven, the seventh son was David out in the back. He never would have picked David. But when he saw him, the Lord spoke to him. 
God said on the front end, don't look at the appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? On the heart. And so whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, Paul is making the case. It's not based upon what religion you're a part of. It's based upon a faith relationship with the living God who cares about every detail of your life. In Romans 2, the Apostle Paul addresses the moral and religious arguments. Maybe you saw them as we were reading this morning. He's asking loaded questions. He uses a bit of sarcasm. He's making uh, arguments from an old covenant perspective to how to understand the gospel. In a stunning confrontation, Paul demonstrates that the Jews knew the truth, rejected the truth, and are therefore under the condemnation of God, just like the Gentiles. So I think chapter 2 is, is dealing here with the Jewish mindset, which he picks up in earnest in verse 17. Chapter 1, with that moral freefall that we spent several weeks on, that, that seems to be speaking to the Gentile world, although they're interchangeable. And you can imagine the Jew the Jewish person hearing Paul uh, uh, share these things or hearing it read in the church at Rome. Y- yes, this is right. This is, that's the way the Gentiles are. You know how they are. And so he takes them to task in chapter 2 by saying, in effect, what's worse is you have the law. You have the privileges that God has given to you. And yet, you missed the whole point. You're just... You're just as guilty as they are and in need of salvation. Paul's purpose in this chapter is really to underscore the need of the Jewish people along with the rest of the world for the gift of righteousness which God freely gives to those who trust in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that will lead you to heaven, the righteousness that will reconcile you to God is is not self-righteousness. It's a righteousness that's received outside of you. It's it's the righteousness of God found in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead that whoever turns from their sins and believes in him passes from death to life. And God credits the righteousness of Christ to your ledger so that when God sees you, he treats you and regards you as being in his son Both Jews and Gentiles are under the dominion of sin and in need of salvation. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And the most important question we can ask any time we think about God, any time that we enter into his presence, is how am I related to him? Do I know him in a saving way? Your baptism won't save you. Your church membership won't save you. Your Bible ownership won't save you. Your Christian upbringing won't save you. Only Jesus Christ will save you. These are channels and means by which we proclaim that glorious message. But would you see Jesus Christ not a stony Savior, not, a, uh, not an indifferent Redeemer, but a, a God who came from heaven to earth, lived a sinless life, and died in our stead? Picking up in chapter 2, verses 17 through 27, I would move on secondly to the pitfalls every religious person faces. 
That's what he's mentioning here to the Jew. I want to encourage you to look at your insert, and we're going to move through these um, quickly, but I, I would hope in a way that would really fix this argument as in the danger of being enmeshed in a religion without a saving relationship with God. The first pitfall every religious person would face would be being lulled into a false hope because of personal performance. If you're in a religious system and you're trusting in that system, uh, the, the danger is to be lulled into a false hope because, hey, I'm, I'm in the system. I'm checking off the boxes. I'm doing what they said I have to do to be right with God. And that can be a false hope. He says in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, in other words, you're in the system. You can be lulled to sleep thinking, hey, I've got, I, we've got the covenants, we've got the, the word of God, we've got the traditions. One of the ways the religion can make, that religion can make you prideful is by performance. We are gathered in this room today as a, a weekly a commitment in our lives. Yes, we get sick and we shouldn't come. <laughs> yes, we go on vacations, but by and large, covenant members here understand the importance of what it means to come together. God has commanded us to come together, not to earn his forgiveness, not to earn salvation, but that we might hear things to feed our soul and to motivate us and to encourage us to live the Christian life. But the Jew is saying, hey, we've got the law. We boast in God. We've got a history. They would never erect a tower because of the, of the prohibition of idolatry. But if, they, they, if Israel would, were to erect a tower, it would have been a Moses. He's our man. He's the lawgiver. Paul challenged them, you Jews have God's law. Worship the one true God. You knew right from wrong and yet regarded yourself better than than those who didn't have the law. You're blind. They boasted in one sense, but it was a sham because it was not met by the obedience of faith. You can go to church every time we have the door open, but if it's not bringing about an obedience of faith and suffering, savoring Jesus Christ in a relationship with him, it's a religious sham. That's frightening. To be so encased in a religion that you are self-deceived and blinded. I was just thinking on that point alone. As we walk through life together, I preach that you would have true hope, not false hope. I preach so that you wouldn't be lulled to sleep into a false hope of trusting into your, in yourself. That your faith would find a resting place in Christ alone. Examine yourself before him. One of the important parts of coming to the Lord's table, which we will in just a moment, is to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith, to confess our sins to Christ, and to say once again, Lord, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Notice secondly, the spiritual, the, another pitfall, spiritual advantages and privileges that become points of pride. Verses 18 and following, you will know and approve what's excellent because you're instructed from the law. Look at all the advantages here. The law in verse 17, you rely on the law. Verse 18, you're instructed in the law. The covenant, you boast in God. Our family tree goes back to Abraham, the Jew could say. 
Verse 18, you know his will and approve what's excellent. You know God's will. He has revealed it to you in scripture. Look at these advantages. Some of you can relate to this because you didn't grow up at a Christian home. And God's grace came to you as an adult or maybe in your late teens. You didn't have those privileges. You didn't have those advantages. Which goes to show us that God's grace is not brought about by your parenting. A Christian home needs God's grace just the same as anybody else. The Jews had incredible privileges, incredible advantages. Just think of us in this room, the advantages that God has given to us. To gather, to lift our voice in praise, to encourage one another, to be a church family to one another. Not only that, they were to be moral light. Verse 19, a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish. And his concern, Paul's concern for his fellow Jews, and remember that's, that's Paul's pedigree. Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, blameless, and on and on it goes. Paul's concern for them is an overconfidence in their spiritual state. They were teaching and boasting of their advantages and privileges as God's covenant people, but, but they were blind and lost. I was reminded uh, in another context of the Lord Jesus Christ when he speaks to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. The Lord said to this church, for you say, this is what you think about yourself, Jesus said to them. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Paul's sarcasm here parallels what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 25 when he said how terrible it will be for the teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees, for you cross land and sea, you cross land and sea to make one convert and then you turn him into twice the son of hell as you yourselves are. That's strong. A Jew would see himself as a guide for the blind and that's what they were intended to be a light to the nations, but often they became exclusive to themselves and despised the Gentiles. They claimed to be a beacon of light, but they were unwilling to recognize the light of the world when he stood before them. <clears throat> before them. The Jews knew that they had truth and were proud of it, but that did not save. You can have a hundred Bibles in your home and it have no effect on your life. Knowing and doing is critical to a faithful walk. It is the fruit of salvation. What's the fruit of your life? Is it love and joy and peace and patience and obedience to Christ? Then he mentions circumcision, which may not mean much to us, but it was everything to the Jew. It was the Jewish last retreat. Well, we got circumcision. And indeed, they were given that sign of the covenant when God came to Abraham. You'll remember in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go 
from your country, your kindred, and your family, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a blessing, and I will bless your, your name and make it great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And from your descendants it shall be as the stars of the heaven. And then in chapter 17, God came to Abraham and established the sign of this covenant, which would be circumcision. This is my covenant, which I shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you read that all through the Old Testament of this sign of the covenant, this sign of faith. We find that God does give signs, ordinances to us. Baptism is one. It's a picture of saving faith. It's a picture of how we've been buried with Christ and raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of the gospel and the message we're to proclaim to this world. In just a few moments, we're going to observe another ordinance. And that's the Lord's Supper that he gave to the church to remember his body given over. It's a sign of our faith. It is a, a, a nurturing of grace, a means of grace to strengthen us to live for him. And so the Jews said, we have circumcision, but you can be circumcised and not saved. And we'll find in Romans, not all of Israel is of Israel. You can have the external sign, but if it's not an internal reality, you're self-deceived. They had an air of superiority in how others are viewed. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance. We should be confident in Jesus Christ, not arrogant. I would just really hold this up as a lesson from the Jews from this passage. That our knowledge in Christ should make us humble, sweet-spirited, kind, not arrogant and condescending. And I think sometimes maybe in the rage of debates in our world, Christians can come across know-it-all-ish. In the conversation to win the argument, and that's not to be the case at all. An air of superiority on how others are viewed. That comes up in Luke 18. In that parable Jesus told about the rich man, or excuse me, about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like that tax collector and then he began to go through his resume he said I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get and that tax collector over there that sellout that sinner Jesus said he wouldn't even lift his head to heaven but actually beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner and Jesus said I tell you this man went to his house justified not the other Another pitfall is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy that leads to blaspheming God's name. You just have a bad witness because, well, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. You ever heard that? That's the number one complaint people have about church life. Hypocr hypocrisy that leads to blaspheming God's name. 
He says in 21 through 24, when you teach others, do you teach yourself? Oh, you have it, you know, I, I, I picture, have this in my mind where um, someone who has all the, all the information, you know, a subject comes up, pride, for instance, and so this person is able to just break out into a teaching on pride. You talk about any aspect of, of Bible knowledge, and they, they've, got the, they've got the outlines, they've got the illustrations, they just don't have the reality. And Paul takes them to task here. Do you teach others? Why don't you teach yourself? That's what he's saying. You preach against stealing? Do you steal adultery? Do you commit adultery? Idolatry? Do you dabble with, with the idolatrous? So each of these, command, each of these questions touches on, on a matter of the Ten Commandments. He mentions the Eighth Commandment of theft. You tell people not to steal, and are you stealing? That's a good question to ask this morning. Do you teach others not to commit adultery, and is, is that what you're doing? That's convicting, isn't it? Do you dishonor God? That's through idols. That's commandment one and two. So the law convicts. One of the great ways to understand the gospel is that the law slays you to bring you to the good news. The law is more than a legalistic minimum requirement. It is a guideline for living according to the will of God. And when we read the Bible, often we ought, we ought to read in such a way where we come to something and it says, oh, I'm not doing that. We read the Bible and it's like, I need to stop doing that. I don't need to rename it. I don't need to rationalize it. I don't need to blame shift it. I need to own it that this is disobedience and I need to put it off from my life. Paul is saying to them, wow, you got all the teaching down. You got the commandments down. But it's strangely missing, sadly missing in your life. Before we accuse others, we must look at ourselves and see if that same sin in any form exists within us. That's a good thought for you and I to have coming to the Lord's table. That God would, so, his spirit would, would move so freely among us that we would put off any such hypocrisy. Their sins were still causing the Gentiles to blaspheme God. We know what that's like, don't we? Recently, I forgot in what venue, if it was here, forgive me. <laughs> but uh, I remember back in the late 80s, I just became um, a Christian. And the Jim Baker and the Tammy Faye and the Jimmy Swaggart all hit the headlines every day on the news. And as a new believer, living among my college friends who did not walk the way, I, I heard about it every day. And I thought, oh, that's what that looks like. I thought of that when, when I read this, causing others to blaspheme God, you Christians. Some of it's rightly deserved. Some of it's not. At the end of the day, we need to be focused on what God thinks of us, not what the world thinks of us. What does he say? Sometimes we'll hear in Christian gatherings, 
The world is watching. Well, it may be, but what's most important for the people of God is that God's watching. And that the decisions we make and the life we live is before him. They participated outwardly in this pitfall, a pitfall of a religious person participating outwardly through circumcision or whatever aspect of the law, but inwardly devoid of saving faith. Again, not all Israel is Israel. Not every church member is a Christian, a born-again believer. And I think that should cause us to sit up and say, where am I with the Lord? The Christian poet uh, Vasali uh, Zukovsky wrote, we all have crosses to bear and we are constantly trying on different ones for a good fit. And that's the way a, a lot of church people can look at Christianity. Is I just want enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk and a snooze in the sunshine. The day of casual commitment to the gospel is coming to an end in our culture. Do you feel it? A casual relationship with Jesus will not sustain anyone with the winds that are blowing in our culture at present. We must be prepared to stand alone that he is our hope and stay. We must pray that our light might shine more brightly than ever in our darkening world. So let me close as we transition to the Lord's table. What's a true Jew? This is, this is quite an indictment as he closes out verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, which is exactly the way the Jew thought of himself, of an outward appearance, um, a nationality, an ethnic identity. No one is a Jew who is one merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What do you mean, Paul? For centuries, Jewish boys have been circumcised as a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. What do you mean a true Jew doesn't possess these things? He goes on to say, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so the emphasis here in, in the closing is that the Spirit of God is the one who transforms uncircumcised Gentiles like us into circumcised Jews. And I'm speaking of this in a spiritual sense. How do I become a true Jew? What is a true Jew? One who is repentant of their sins and is trusting in Jesus Christ with a heart made clean by the new covenant. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, the circumcising of our hearts. Circumcision is an inward work of the heart, not an external, external change of a body part. That's what Paul's saying here. The Jews have the externals of the covenant, but not the inward reality. The law, in fact, called for an internal change brought by the Holy Spirit, who would write God's law on our heart. I think of uh, Nicodemus in John 3. He had the externals down. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus said you have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's, a, it's something that, that must happen. You must be born again. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. I'm wondering if that may be you this morning, that God has convicted you at some point in this message of your need for Christ, that your religion won't save you, your code of ethics that you've crafted in your heart will not sustain you on the judgment. That's why Christ came. He lived a perfect life to be your righteousness. Jesus said you must be born again or you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. How can I do that? Well, Jesus was asked that by Nicodemus and he said, the wind blows where it wishes. That's not an answer. It's a work of God. And so under the hearing of this, uh, of this gospel that you would say this day, yes, I believe that's true. Yes, I believe God sent Jesus, his one and only son. Yes, I believe he fulfilled the law perfectly. Yes, I believe he's, he's the only savior who'll ever be. And that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. But not only do I believe that in an intellectual sense, I, I trust him. I trust him myself today. I believe on him. To get to that point in your life is not merely a mental exercise. True saving faith is a work of the Spirit where you see him for who he is. And you say, yes, Lord, I see. I see him. He's beautiful. I'm not talking about with our eyes. I'm talking about with the eyes of faith. All the promises of God are yes in him. He's what I've looked for my whole life. With all of my religious dead ends, with all of my lucky charms, I see what God has done for me through Jesus Christ. There will never be another savior. He's the only one. Run to him now. Run to him now. And receive him for who he is. His praise our praise is not from man, but from God. James Boyce said, if you have been trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross in your place, throw whatever it is completely out of your mind, abandon it, stamp upon it, grind it down, dust off the place where it lay, they turn to, and, and then turn to Jesus Christ alone and trust him only. That's the message of the gospel and that's what we're going to enjoy right now as Jared comes to lead us to the Lord's table. May we honor him as we come.